it is really cool when I see young American boys learning how to play the harp. That brings me great joy, you know, to just take away the limits, take away any kind of expectations or limits, whether it be gender, race or like genre at all, because I think the harp has held such a like oh, it's a precious museum style instrument that don't Mm. get too close to it, you know, like don't be too rough with it. I think that the door needs to be open to anybody that wants to try to learn. That was Mary Lattimore. And this is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt, and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, Shiro's Radio. Shiro's is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come, and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. There were lots of reasons I was excited to have this week's guest on the show. First, I'm a big fan of hers, both for her own work and her collaborations with some of my favorite artists. And second, I love an opportunity to chat with an artist who's had her hands in a multitude of genres, including classical, experimental, psych folk, indie rock, and what some may classify as new age. And it's exciting to talk music with someone whose main instrument is the harp, which is a change of pace from the more common guitar, piano, and bass players that I usually talk with. If you aren't familiar with Mary Lattimore's solo work, chances are you've heard her amazing playing on recordings by the likes of Thurston Moore, Sharon Van Etten, Wise Blood Soccer Mommy, Kurt Vile, and way, way too many more to list here. The daughter of a working classical harpist and raised in Asheville, North Carolina, the composer, harpist, and multi-instrumentalist was classically trained on the harp from age 11, but following graduation from the Eastman School of Music, Mary Lattimore Lattimore moved to Philadelphia and dove into the underground and indie music scene there. Over the years, she's become known as an innovator and ethereal improviser who often uses electronic effects to expand her sound. An in-demand session player and collaborator, Mary Lattimore has put out five solo albums. Her first was released as a self-titled cassette in 2012, then reissued the following year as The Withdrawing Room. At the Dam followed in 2016, Hundreds of Days, in 2018, and then her critically acclaimed fourth album, Silver Ladders, in 2020. A few months ago, Mary Lattimore returned with her fifth solo effort, the gorgeous Goodbye Hotel Arcata, and she joins us now as this week's Shiro in the spotlight. Mary Lattimore, welcome to Shiro's. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here too. This is fun. Congratulations on the new album, Goodbye Hotel Arcata, you just told me is how Mm -hmm. it's pronounced. Thanks so much. Why don't we start by talking about the record and how and where this album was made? I know that you often travel to different places or travel during the making of your record. So tell us about this one. Yeah, I usually love to just get the inspiration from a bunch of different places that I'm not really used to being in, you know, kind of having an alien feeling incorporated into the recording, like a destination with a time limit, like at a artist residency or something. A lot of these I worked on at home, though. So I have a little studio in the second bedroom of my house and 
my harp is in there with some synthesizers and stuff. And I had a really good time sitting down and just making stuff and processing tours or, or, you know, processing being home and memories that I had from different experiences throughout the two years that I was making it. And so, you know, had fun kind of like holding up and working on the songs. Some of them I did record in different places. Like one of the songs was a song that I made with Roy Montgomery, who's a New Zealand guitar player. And I was at a artist residency in Wyoming on a cattle ranch. And so Roy and I were kind of pen pals passing songs back and forth to try to, you know, get guitar and harp on. That was from a couple years ago. And then I just polished it up at home. But yeah, I would say that a lot of this was made in my house, which is cool. It's a different process than I usually have. And I worked with this producer, Rob Schnapp, who is a wonderful Mm. dude and like very accomplished producer and mixer. And he helped me kind of polish the songs because sometimes for better or worse, I make songs that are like sprawling nine minute things, you know, that are improvised and kind of go into different places, like a little sonic adventure or something. But this time, you know, I wanted to make them more like songs, less improvisatory, but a little more polished. And so I got Rob to kind of help me trim down the songs and edit them in a way. And that was really fun too. That was in Los Angeles where I live as well. So this record, although I did make some of the nuggets, like some of the foundations of the songs in different places, I really think of it as a record that I made at home, but reflecting on things from the past. Wow. (laughs) And was any of that a byproduct of pandemic times? I mean, you said you worked on this for two years, or was this just a choice because of something else? In the pandemic, I honestly didn't really make anything. So the two years, I mean, I guess at least in the beginning, I was not inspired. I was just very (laughs) sad and terrified and like very doomy, I guess. And I didn't really feel like playing the harp at all. That wasn't a tool that I used to process the pandemic. I was trying to play different instruments, but not really make any statement about the experience or any kind of beautiful or sad thing based on that experience. I was just mainly like crying in the bathtub every day. Oh, God, (laughs) I can so relate. (laughs) Can't we all? Yeah. Um, Well, I'd love to start with one of these songs. There are no lyrics for those Mm -hmm. that are newcomers to Mary Lattimore. This is instrumental music, but you do have some human voices here. Maybe we could talk about track one, because I love the story behind this. And also it sees you reuniting with your old friend Meg Baird. Yeah, Meg. I had such a fun time working on this because, you know, I made it at home just one afternoon, just sitting at the harp. And also there's Omnichord on it, which I had just gotten this Omnichord, which is a pretty cool little instrument. It's Japanese battery powered. It kind of sounds like you press buttons and then you push this thing kind of has glissando-esque sounds to it. You can hear it in the song, but I had a lot of fun messing around with my new Omnichord and sat down with the harp too. And I made the song kind of based on this experience I had as a child winning this drawing contest where I got to go to Sesame Street live to see Sesame Street characters, you know, sing and dance. And I got to invite some little school friends of mine. And then I got to go backstage and meet some of the characters, Big Bird and the honkers and stuff. And it was so much fun. But it it also like gave me the knowledge that amazing things happen backstage, you know, and like, like, oh, there's a magic (laughs) behind the curtain that people don't get to see a lot. And so the song is kind of about escapism a little bit, thinking about this benevolent yellow bird wrapping his wings around your little child 
body and like, oh, maybe taking flight with you or something, just kind of like feeling protected and like being taken away from the troubles of the modern world. That's how I see it, even though I don't think Big Bird could really fly. But then after I made this song in my house, I passed it along to Walt McClements, who's a very dear friend of mine. He plays with Wise Blood. He plays keyboards with her, but he also is a very amazing accordion player and he puts the accordion through effects. So he has a lot of pedals and the accordion kind of sounds droney and rich and saturated is always the word I think of when I think about his playing. It's just like a lot of colors, you know, intense and just really rich tones. And I passed the song to him and he added some beautiful accordion on the song. And then I went up to Eureka, California, where Meg lives. My really close friend, Meg Baird, who has this very silvery, gorgeous voice. And she and I and our friend Ben Chasney recorded her parts and she layered them. And that was really fun for us. And then we had spaghetti. It was just like a really fun, <laughs> like little, little trip on the plane, a quick trip up to record these vocals and then hang out. And, you know, the nice memories of the recording are embedded in the songs, too. he wrapped his wings around me. It kicks off Goodbye Hotel Arcada by Mary Lattimore, who is our guest today on Shiro's and his wings is referring to Big Bird. What a thrill to meet Big Bird. When you're composing the songs, is there a starting thought or a story or a concept that then you respond to? Is there a visual that you're having as you're creating or writing or improvising? Maybe it's different for each one, but like for this specific one, was this a triggered memory even that came up as you were playing? I would say so. Yeah. Each time mm -hmm. it's always like a little story and a little visual in my mind. I'm like really nostalgic as a person and I always want to try to remember something with an undulled kind of feeling, you know, just remember the feeling and unfortunately, like, especially as I get older, I'm not able to like the memories drift further and further away. And I feel like my instinct is to like preserve and grip on to that memory and that feeling that I had as vividly as I possibly can. And so I've learned that a way for me to do that is to try to make something that triggers the memory. So I would say that I start out with this feeling like, oh, yeah, that was such a great time. Or, oh, yeah, my my heart was or is so broken. I need to process it. I need to remember how this feels, even though I know that it won't feel this way forever. Right. You know, it's an interesting exercise. And, you know, in the end, I feel like I'll probably have a bunch of records with a bunch of little stories and inside jokes with myself. And that'll be like a <laughs> life's work. You know what? That reminds me of a recent conversation I had with Leslie Feist, because she was talking about how she started doing this exercise or a practice where she's burying little hidden secret mm -hmm. messages to a future <laughs> self yeah. in her songs, you uh -huh. know, so that when it's, she can go back, she can find them again. 
again. I, I, lo- love I loved that so much. Totally. That's exactly it. I would love Mm -hmm. to talk to her about that sometime. That's really cool. And I also feel like it's also like little like tributes to your past self. I've been recently thinking about how much I am into The Cure, you know, like my favorite band (laughs) of my whole life. And I'm like loving them even more than I ever have. But just thinking that you have this band that has been with you since you were 11 years old, like through all the crazy stuff. And oh, my little 15 year old self weeping and reading poetry to myself and listening to The Cure and smoking cigarettes. Like she would be so amazed to know that Lowell from The Cure is on this new record. He's the original drummer and founding member. He's actually on this record and just thinking about like living a little bit in service to 15-year-old Mary, like little Mary, what would she think about this? It's so wild. I love it. All right. Now we have to play (laughs) some of Arrivederci, obviously. (laughs) What else do you want to tell us about this track before we play a little clip of it? It felt like very cathartic when I made this track because I made it after I came home from embarrassingly getting fired from a harp job, which is very rare, fortunately, but also I deserved it. And like the parts that I was asked to play were really hard and I practiced them a lot. But when it came down to it, I just did not sound as great as like a session musician would. So I, in the end, I was just like, I'm sorry. I feel like you deserve to have a better sounding harp on this track. It's a beautiful part. Here's a number of some other harpists you can call. And then I came home and I just like cried my eyes out and I was like, I'm a failure. But then I just went to the harp and I just made this song, you know, like an hour after I got home and I I was just like, I need to make myself feel connected to the instrument in the way Mm. that I want to be again. You know what I mean? And so I just sat down and I made it and I feel like it reset something for me. And so I feel happy about this one, especially like Lowell playing synthesizers on it is just a dream come true. And that sparked our friendship too, which is great. Okay, inquiring minds want to know, aka me, how did you meet him? How did you make that happen? Oh, yeah, I have this friend, Joe Wong, who is, we kind of laugh because we're like, everybody knows Joe. Like, Joe's this friend in LA, and he also has a podcast that's called The Trap Set. And originally, it was just drummers because Joe is a drummer. And so Joe wanted to interview drummers about their careers and practices and stuff and backgrounds. Like, when I lived in Philly, I lived with a drummer. Chris Wilson, he is a drummer for Titus Andronicus and Ted Leo and the Pharmacist and just a great punk drummer. And he knew Joe, he had been on his podcast. And so when I moved to LA, he introduced me to Joe and then Joe kind of opened the door, introducing me to a lot of really interesting artists, musicians, and has just been a great friend. And Joe was like, you're going to be happy to meet this person. (laughs) Introduced me to Lowell. (laughs) And and I was like, oh my gosh, of course, this is just so cool. And then eventually, yeah, I asked him to play on this song and he was down and I was hosting this New Year's Eve party and had kind of a big rager. It was really fun and delightful, (laughs) sparklers and champagne and stuff. And I got an indication on my phone that he had sent his parts back. And so I kind of like retreated into my room quietly and listened to his parts on my song. And that was just like the perfect way to end the year and start a new year because it was just what the song needed. And I mean, the sounds are just so familiar and beloved to me.
Arrivederci featuring Lowell Tallhurst of The Cure on the new Mary Lattimore album, Goodbye Hotel Arcata. So far, we've covered track one and two. And track one took us back to little bitty Mary. <laughs> How old do you think you were when that happened, when you met Big Bird? I think I was probably seven. Okay. And then yeah. like The Cure, who you said mm-hmm. you started to love and have forever after loved and now you love even more <laughs> at age 11. Mm-hmm. And that's the next track. So I feel like we're also kind of taking a little time travel through your <laughs> personal history here, too. It's oh, that's awesome. funny. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. Why is it called Arrivederci? Well, the job that I got fired from yeah. was an Italian, beautiful okay. Italian composer. Okay. <laughs> I walked away in shame. Yes, I see now. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. But like way to like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make something, you know, that's what art is for, right? Mm-hmm. Is like, you yeah. know, making something beautiful out of something painful if you need to do that. Also, I just wanted to say out loud, you mentioned the Omnicord. This is so sidebar, but... Do you know the artist Michelle and Degicello? Sort of. I think she's actually very good friends with Joe. That makes good sense. Yeah. So she just did a whole album devoted to the Omnicord. Oh, called, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's called the Omnicord Real Book. I suggest you check oh, it out. I, I, I think you will definitely appreciate. Yeah, for That's sure. That's awesome. The other thing that that I was thinking about before we got on the line today was, wow, so not only have I never had a harp player on my show, nor do I think I have ever interviewed a harpist. (laughs) No, I don't think I have. Wow. So that's exciting. (laughs) But also, it's so cool because on Shiro's, I think a lot about gendered instruments Mm -hmm. because they're still weirdly kind of a thing, maybe less so now than they used to be, but Mm -hmm. still, there's still surprise when it's a drummer that's a female-bodied person, or even a full band of female-bodied mm-hmm. people. Not normal yet. Right. Not sure why. But patriarchy. So it's interesting to talk to somebody that plays an instrument that is, correct me if I'm wrong, gendered, but like in the opposite direction. Mm. I don't, I can't think of any other instrument. I don't know, maybe the flute? Yeah, yeah. Right? I uh-huh. mean, are there any other instruments that you can think of? That are like really strongly associated with a female bodied Mm. person playing them? Nope. I'm trying to think. Yeah, the flute. But I mean, the funny thing is the harp, like the two founding fathers of the harp techniques were both men and they trained gaggles of girls and women on how to play their technique of the harp, you know. I would also say there are a lot of European harpists who are men. So I feel like it might be like an American thing, actually. Weird. Where it's, mm-hmm. Yeah, I know a bunch of men in Europe who play the harp, and I don't think that it's, it's seen as a feminine instrument there. But. It's so wild because, weirdly, I also just stumbled on Dorothy. Dorothy Ashby? Yes. Oh, yeah. I don't know why, how this came into my orbit recently, but it did. And I was like, right, jazz harp. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then I was thinking like, oh, right, Brandy Younger is like a you know yeah. newer version of that. Anyway, so I just went down this little rabbit hole about harps and people who play them and mm-hmm. then got on this whole trip about it being a feminine instrument. Mm-hmm. Weird. And loving to see so many women of color playing the harp lately. I was just curious to talk to you about, okay, so like on the other side of the fence, 
what is it like, Mary, to play an <laughs> instrument that actually our gender owns? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, wow. Is that great or is it have its stuff too? It's, I mean, I don't know if I have ever felt like our gender owns it. I mean, I just know that like Marcel Grangin, he's, he's like my grand teacher, you know, he taught mm. my teacher. And I guess because I know male harpists that I don't really think that we own it. But I do feel like it is really cool when I see young American boys learning how to play the harp. That brings me great joy, you know, to just take away the limits, you know, take away any kind of expectations or limits, whether it be gender, race or like genre at all. Because I think the harp has held such a like, oh, it's a precious museum style instrument that don't Mm. get too close to it, you know, like don't don't be too rough with it. Like, I think that the door needs to be open to anybody that wants to try to learn and play. And it's really fun. I think it's very cost prohibitive and it's heavy, but there are different programs where you can get funding to have lessons or scholarships or rent to own programs. And I don't know, I just really want it to be seen as an instrument that anyone can try to play. I don't know. It does feel cool, you know, to have a lot of harp friends and the community feels supportive as far as you can use my harp when you come to such and such place and I'll use your harp when I come to California and that kind of thing. And I will say, I mean, a lot of my friends are women in this harp world and that does feel like a little harp club where we're just like, yeah, use my harp. Yeah, I'm coming to your show, like that kind of thing. But if there were more male harpists in LA, I would feel the same way about them too. Right. (laughs) And I, I think I should rephrase what I said before. Like when I said that we own it, What I meant to say was being free of the like, wow, you play the harp really good for a girl. I mean, you probably have never heard that. No. Yeah. I mean, I would say that I haven't heard that, but I have heard, we'll mic this for you. Like on the technical side, Uh, like playing a show, like, you know, I feel like that's where the bias comes in or like the opinions, (laughs) the mansplaining Mm -hmm. comes Mm -hmm. in when you're trying to set up your stuff and, you know, like kind of hovering over you and case you need help with setting up the mic stand or something like but that's the way everybody feels I'm sure it's just the nature of things it's fun to be an expert on something yeah (laughs) hell yeah like last night at town hall it was so fun it was so lovely because the guys I think there were union guys and they were like doing the sound and lights and stuff and everybody was really kind to me and then the sound engineer is like your pickup sounds so great. Tell me about it. You know, I want to take a picture of it. I want to know like the kind of harp pickup in case I ever need to use this information for another harpist that comes into town hall. And I was like, wow, to myself, I was like, this is so cool that I am the expert that is being consulted on harp (laughs) miking. I mean, I'm 43 years old and finally to feel like a little bit of an expert on something feels great. Congratulations. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It took a long time. Wow. Why do you think that took so long? I don't know. I'm also still 
learning a lot every single time I play Sure. It. Aren't we all? <laughs> yes. There's so much yeah. to know. Mm-hmm. Well, what can you tell us about your personal journey with music? And also, if you wouldn't mind, like a little bit through the lens of being a girl and growing mm-hmm. up pursuing music. How was that for you? What was your journey like? And how mm-hmm. did you get going? Well, my mom is a harpist. And so I was able to watch her career as a kid, you know, watching her get ready for gigs and seeing her travel all over North and South Carolina, Tennessee, you know, the neighboring states around North Carolina where we lived and, uh, you know, seeing her work really, really hard at playing weddings and teaching a million students and having a harp ensemble and just like, you know, spending her days with us as kids, but then having this sort of secret world where she would go off and do her work and like play and make money in that way and wearing like a dress and like putting on lipstick and perfume and then leaving the house and doing the harp job. Or like, you know, we would also go to a lot of her orchestra rehearsals and orchestra concerts and things. And I feel like that was my role model as far as seeing that that was like a viable career, like music as a career. So I was very, very lucky to have such a role model and have harps around and to be around the sound of the harp and have it be a familiar sound growing up. And when I was 11, I started to take lessons and I didn't really want to at first because, you know, practicing as an 11, 12 year old, it's not that fun. But eventually I learned to really love it. And it was always my goal to also be an orchestral harpist like my mom. Mm -hmm. And I went to music conservatory. But I also at the same time, I listened to a lot of music that wasn't classical. And I worked at a bunch of record stores and I worked at a radio station in college and listen to rock music, indie rock, like college rock stuff, and then have this classical world where I practiced a lot and was in a practice room and playing with orchestras in school and things. And so I think the pivotal moment for me was moving to Philadelphia and meeting all these people that were in bands and they wanted me to put heart parts on their records. And so I kind of learned how to write parts, but I would say that unlearning all the classical music like rigidity was a tricky thing. As far as being a girl growing up and wanting to be a musician, I mean, I guess a thing I was thinking about today was like my parents were kind of afraid for me to go into music because, you know, I had seen my mom having this great career and making money and doing what she loved, but she saw it as like, because she was and is married to my dad, who always had a very steady job with health insurance and stuff for our family and a regular salary. My mom saw that as like, Mary, it's going to be hard for you if you're not married with a husband who can provide the health insurance because freelance life isn't enough. She's like, the only reason why I can do this is because I have your dad who's holding it down with the steady job. And so I feel like as a person who likes to drift around, I'm not in a relationship, I'm not getting married anytime soon to a man who has a steady job or um, (laughs) health insurance. And so I feel like hearing her say that made me even more determined to figure that out on my own, you know, and like, okay, well, I just have to hustle just as hard or harder to supplement to just do it on my own. So 
I don't know. I think we're just like in a different time now than when I was growing up, you know, where it was like, okay, the man has the main job and the woman can, you know, although like my mom is very, very accomplished and, but it is hard to cobble together a million different musical small jobs, especially getting older. It's hard work to be a musician. It's not just a romantic fun thing. It's really hard. I don't know if that answered the question. <laughs> it's fascinating. And so how do you make it work? Like aside from your own work, you also collaborate. Like you've said, you've done arranging and playing on other people's records. How have you pulled it all together? And have you yeah. discovered anything that you particularly love to do outside of your own work? Mm. I mean, I just really love to travel and see the world and play for people. And Mm -hmm. so it's like a great joy and it's like the honor of my life to get to play for a room full of people that are listening. And especially if they're hearing the harp for the first time or seeing the instrument played in person for the first time. I don't know. I just think it's so cool to be able to carry that torch a little bit and introduce people to the instrument. And I just love having all these different experiences and going on tour. So I tour a lot and I also have been working on film scoring too. Yeah. Kind of jump, yeah jumping That's into so that world. That's so cool. Yeah. Oh, hearkening back to the earlier part of our conversation where I was saying like, are you visualizing mm-hmm. these stories as you're composing for them? And how cool to have a story already laid out for you and maybe even some visuals to work with as well. Is that how that goes? Uh What's been your experience so far? So far, I've done a couple of documentaries. That's been really cool. I would say it's a different way of composing and playing big time because you have to grow thicker skin to have people actually be like, you know, what you made that you think is a perfect fit for the scene. Actually, we hear something totally different in our minds that goes here. So because we are the filmmaker, director, this is our vision and the musician is in service to the film itself, you know, and so... You kind of have to get thick skin and be like, okay, I'll give it another shot. And here's a different version. If you don't like that, here's a different version, you know, and then that becomes kind of cool because the more revisions you do and the harder you work at it, it feels extra good when it's just the right fit. When you piece together the puzzle and it's like, oh, yeah, that's the feeling that we're trying to put out there when the viewer is watching this scene, you know, that feels really good. And yeah, it's fun to also be able to use different instruments that I've had that I wouldn't necessarily like play all the time in my own music, but to expand the palette and like use different sounds. Was that recent enough that that may have played into this new album? No, I don't think so. The film scoring came after most of the songs were already written, but I do feel like there are little mini movies in my brain. Let's play one of the songs that you have that really strong visual mini movies in your mind for. Mm -hmm. I think the last song, Yesterday's Parties, I wrote it in Brussels when I was doing a little mini residency at a club in Brussels. They gave me the top floor of the club and had my harp up there. And I have a few friends that live in Brussels, but they're all out of town. And so I was there basically by myself. And so I was kind of just like walking around, missing these friends and like looking inside of the windows in the evening, kind of like snooping, (laughs) looking at the stained glass. Brussels is such a beautiful city and and feeling a little bit lonely. And I don't know, the song definitely feels like that to me, the evening light and a little bit melancholy and stained glass are like sort of crumbling 
elegance. I don't know. I can picture it in my mind. And one of my sheroes, Rachel Goswell. Did you get to know Rachel because you had worked with Neil Halstead or... Yes. I actually had never met Rachel before I asked her to be on this song, but we just knew each other a little bit from Instagram. I'm such a fan of her beautiful voice and her band. They're amazing. And so I asked Neil, I was like, do you think Rachel might ever say yes if I asked her to sing on the record? And he's like, yeah, definitely she would. So he's like, don't be nervous, just do it. (laughs) So yeah, she was quick to say yes. And man, it's crazy to hear her voice with the harp. I think it sounds really, really great. That's yesterday's parties. Now we've gone from the top all the way to the end. This is also the longest song mm. on this record, featuring Rachel Goswell of Slow Dive and Samara Lubelski, who is a violinist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. She and I became friends when we toured with Thurston Moore together. We were both on Thurston's record, Demolish Thoughts. It came out, I think, 2010 or so. And uh, we toured with him for a couple of years and she and I became like sisters, really good friends. And I knew that I wanted some string drone And she was the one to do it. Amazing. Hearing about your experience moving from classical music to what you do now, it's nerve wracking to step outside of that container. And also, like, I would think with an instrument like the harp, maybe harder to imagine, like, how do these two worlds end up working together even? So it's so cool that you managed to... (laughs) find a way to bring those together. It's funny because my mom has never played anything that hasn't been written on the page. You know, she's very classical and you are very vulnerable when you're improvising. Your brain is like very naked, like the way your brain works and you're showing that to someone. And especially if you're collaborating and it's very like you're really on the spot, but you're supposed to forget that you are so vulnerable and like feel the music. And that's the hard part is like to put that aside and just feel it. And I had a fun opportunity. I'm scoring a doc where the story is about a mother and a daughter who are both photographers, but the mother passed away. And the doc is directed by the daughter. And I was like, you know, I think I'm going to write a piece for my mom and maybe pass the parts back and forth. You know, I'll also be playing, but I'm going to write her parts. And then it's kind of a collaborative thing. And that was the first time I think that she's been able to play something that was not written down. And she's like, can't you write it down? I'm like, nope. I went to music school a long time ago. I don't remember how to write it down, even though I probably could. But I was like, I don't remember how to do it, mom. You're just going to have to listen to the part and recreate it and embellish it and have fun with it. And she did. And I was very, very proud of her. Oh, my God. That's (laughs) so beautiful. I, I know. Like, I think it's a big hurdle to turn off those voices in your head that are like, it's wrong. You're doing it wrong. For sure. Our time is speeding by. I can't believe it. And I want to make sure that I leave a moment for the closing exercise called the Shiro's Magic Wand. Are you ready? Okay. For the Shiro's Magic Wand. (laughs) Okay. So 
The Shiro's Magic Wand. We close each show this way. And I say to my guests, as I will say to you, Mary, I bestow upon you the Shiro's Magic Wand. With it, you have the power to change anything in music and the music industry in particular for women, for non-binary people, for queer folks. If you held this magic wand in your hand, first wave of the wand, what would you do? What would you change? Oh, wow. This is a really, (laughs) it's a cool question. I mean, I've just been, unfortunately, just hearing about so many gross men who are, you know, being called out on just being gross to women. And to me, it makes me really mad. Even if I don't know the full story, I'm like, how hard is it to not be accused of assaulting someone? I've never been accused of assaulting someone. I just feel like it's cool that these men are being called out on it for sure. But it's just so frustrating that they felt like they could do something like that to begin with. And I feel like, I don't know, the magic wand would just be used to take all those creeps away. <laughs> just yeah. send, them away. send them away or just to be rehabilitated or something. I'm really tired of us having to have that dark cloud over what we're trying to make. You know, we're trying to make something beautiful and sincere and cool and good for community and good for people to connect with emotionally and all that and just such sincerity with this music that it shouldn't have these like dark clouds of assault hanging over this cool thing that we're trying to do. Yeah. I mean, it's so important. I mean, safety. What a basic right. (laughs) I know. It's so frustrating that this is in the fabric of what we are doing. Again, you know, for year after year after year, new things being revealed and it's just awful. So I agree. I'm hoping that there will be more conversations around this too. I know that also not only on the performers side of the equation, but also audience members, women not feeling safe or queer folks not feeling safe to go into, you know, music venues to see shows without being groped or without being assaulted or we're um, just all trying to have a good time and make stuff and the world is hard enough you know that's right that's right Mary Lattimore, it's been amazing to have you here. (laughs) Thanks for talking. Um, Clearly, we're having a great time. It just flew by. Goodbye Hotel Arcada is the name of the new album. Why don't you pick, if you would, one last track to take us out with today so we can hear your music as we float away. Oh, thanks. Maybe we should listen to um, music for applying Shimmering Eyeshadow. I was going to suggest it. That's awesome. What can you tell us about this song? That one, I partly made it after I was on tour with Beach House. And I have this vivid memory of Victoria from Beach House, who's a friend of mine. She was getting ready at the King's Theater and like going into her dressing room. She had her own dressing room. And as I remember, it it had those lights, you know, vanity mirror lights. And she was getting prepared for the show. And, you know, just thinking about like... want to make some music that you listen to while you're getting ready to have this experience before you go out onto the stage, you're preparing and you're thinking about your power and you're thinking about like stepping out there in front of everyone and being vulnerable and also connecting with people. And this is what you've worked for, you know, and now you're taking that power and you're going out there. And I really like getting pumped up, like listening to music when I'm getting ready in the green room too. And I'm like, okay, I want to make a song that I would want to listen to while getting ready ready the little rituals before you go out on stage to present what you've made 
to thousands of people. It's a very unique moment that you have with yourself before you go do that. Are there any rituals that you have that work for you? I definitely like having a glass of champagne and listening to a record that I really like and closing the door, not letting anyone else in and just looking in the mirror and being like, yeah, you've you've worked hard for this, you know, like go do it. I get a little bit of stage fright sometimes or anxiety, but it really helps to just like look yourself in the eye and just be like, man, you've worked hard for this and like just take it, do it. Lattimore. Thank you for being here on Chiros. This has been such a pleasure. Yeah, same here. Thanks so much. Many thanks to Mary Lattimore for being with us. Her fifth solo album, Goodbye Hotel Arcata, is available now on Ghostly International. Shiro's is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. Shiro's is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit shirosradio.com to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the Shiro's shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at Shiro's Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast that helps us grow and bring you more Shiro's. Until next time, remember music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening. <laughs>